Meg in my book. Thank you. You can just make it out to me because I'm going to read the whole thing. That was a great talk. Thank you. This week on Indivisible Westchester, the podcast, we're at a book signing event and speak with Bronxville native and author Megan Winter about her new book, All Politics is Local, Why Progressives Must Fight for the States, and find out what she learned on the ground in three very important battleground states. So Megan, tell me about your book. You have a new book. You went out to swing states and did some investigation to try and find out what, take the temperature of what the on the ground atmosphere is. How did that even come about? Um, Yeah, so I was writing for national magazines and I was mostly covering abortion. Um, I am from Westchester County and I was a freelancer and I was writing for New York Magazine and this was around, I think 2014, and they assigned me a piece on abortion and I, Having grown up in this area, I didn't really realize how little I knew about abortion politics. Um, And this was right after, in 2010 and 2011, as many listeners probably know, Republicans swept state legislatures across the country and were passing these anti-abortion bills. So in just hearing general um, thoughts from women around the country about abortion, I quickly started hearing about the various barriers that they were facing. Um, And that sparked my curiosity, and I frankly couldn't believe some of the things I was hearing. Um, Not that I didn't believe the women, but that I was surprised. I should really clarify in case there's any doubt. Um, So that sent me down this rabbit hole where I was um, learning more and more about reproductive reproductive rights laws. And um, that ultimately brought me to state houses across the country um, where I saw a lot that I did not know about previously. Um, I had no idea how much happens on the state level. Um, At the time, I considered myself a relatively politically aware person, Mm -hmm. although frankly, I don't know why I thought that. (laughs) Um, And in these state houses, uh, I just saw how much power state lawmakers have on so many issues that really matter. And we're talking like utility companies and their their emissions, their carbon emissions, um, Medicaid and whether people have health care reproductive rights, voting rights, etc. Um, and that led me to want to write this book. So now you picked three different states that are actually very different. Um, let's start with Missouri. Missouri is one of those classically democratic type states that's the, that has been actually changing. It's become more Republican, more conservative over time. What did you find on the ground there? Yeah, so I think Missouri is one of the most interesting places in the country right now, Um, and I think it's a really um, interesting example, and I chose it because it kind of exemplifies some of the patterns I wanted to write about. So on one hand, as you know, we all know, St. Louis is the home of the Black Lives Matter movement. So this is a place of incredible progressive energy, and not only is this about cultural change, but also the Black Lives Matter organizers have done electoral um, advocacy, they've done, excuse me, electoral organizing, they've gotten new people in office, etc. And then at the same time, on the state level, Missouri has moved very far to the right. Mm -hmm. And so, um, so it's kind of an interesting question of there's so much progressive organizing happening in cities and in the suburbs. Is that going to hit a ceiling in these states where there's a Republican legislature? And I wanted to kind of look at that discrepancy between um, rural districts that are moving so far to the right and urban districts where there's like this reinvigoration of progressive energy. And what did you find? 
Um, so, what do you, um, can you be more specific? No, what well, so what did you find? So do you found that there was this dichotomy oh, okay. that it's like the, there's a lot of progressive organizing mm -hmm. yet the rural areas, you know, right. Claire McCaskill lost, for example. Exactly. So, uh, so do you think it's hit the ceiling? Do you think yeah. like, I mean, I, I think kind of what looking at Missouri shows the extent to which if progressives are going to enact a democratic or progressive agenda long-term, it cannot only be in the cities mm -hmm. because for example, in Missouri, um, Kansas City and St. Louis organizers um, spent years and a lot of time and energy um, trying to raise the minimum wage in the state, and they did. They, it, or not, excuse me, not in the state, in their cities, they raised the minimum wage by quite a lot. I think it was from $7, roughly $7, to roughly $10, and then upward over a few years. It was supposed to be increasing gradually over a few years mm -hmm. based on their laws. And the state legislature immediately decided that they we're not going to allow cities to raise their minimum wage. Mm -hmm. um, and so that the workers in those cities then had a pay de decrease because of the state legislature. And that's just one example of these preemption laws that states are passing across the country that are prohibiting cities from passing their own laws. So um, that's just one example of like hundreds sure. of ways in which progressive organizers throw so much time and energy into something. But the, if there's a super conservative state legislature it almost and i don't want to say it doesn't matter but it you're not going to see the long-term fruits of that labor um and as we know i'm sure listeners to this podcast will know this matters especially now ahead of 2021 because there's going to be redistricting and mm -hmm. republicans will have an opportunity to enshrine power for another decade in places like missouri um so that's one thing that i observed there. An, mm -hmm. Another thing that I think is really important now is how much the, and this is like not going to be a surprise to anyone, but um, how much the cultural issues or what I'm calling the cultural issues like guns, abortion, um, and race really mm -hmm. have been used so expertly by conservatives to drive people apart and to... Um, Really, since the Southern yeah. strategy of the 60s. Yeah, right? it's like yeah. the same thing over mm -hmm. and over again. Right. right. And in the 80s, we always referred to it as God's guns and gays. Exactly. No, they still refer to it that at there in Missouri. And so, something that I did that I think is important, though, that's happening there is this past, was it? I don't remember actually what month it was, but mm -hmm. um, sometime in the past couple of years in Missouri, they passed re a package of reforms, like mm -hmm. redistricting reforms. Um, their lobbying reforms, they're a bunch of good government reforms, and they were able to get buy-in from Republicans as well. Mm -hmm. Not a majority, but some of the enough Republicans, and they were able to put it on the ballot mm -hmm. for a ballot initiative. And that, I think, is a really hopeful avenue for winning back some of these districts, because Democrats, frankly, are not going to win on... I don't want to say so, any issue, but they're not going to win on the issues, but they can start building towards structural change. And that's what Democrats and progressives have not done long term, right. is think about strategic structural changes that can then make fairer maps, fairer, um, just a fairer playing field for lobbying, et cetera. So then let's go to Colorado, which mm -hmm. is now almost like the New West. So it's almost like the reverse, right, of what's mm -hmm. going on in, in uh, Missouri, mm -hmm. or Missouri, as my mother would call it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> She's from the Midwest, so it's exactly. Missouri. But Missouri, yeah. Yeah, uh -huh. um, yeah so, so I wrote about Colorado in part because my editor told me the book was going to get too depressing, and <laughs> I needed some hope. <laughs> right. So I went out looking for hope, and I found um, a a group of people in Missouri, in excuse me in Colorado who are truly are hopeful um, and these are and 
again, when comparing states, it's like apples to oranges. Mm -hmm. um, so I don't, I don't think a lot of what happens in Colorado is transferable necessarily, you know, everywhere. But um, so in Colorado, and I don't want to hold this out as a totally perfect um, example of what's possible because a lot of it is based on donors, like mega donors. Sure. And so that just points to an inher inherent problem with money and politics. Money politics, politics so right. I don't want to just be like, oh, it's great. Everything about this is great because it's not. That's an opinion. excellent point. Yeah. Um, however, there were a handful of mega wealthy Coloradans who decided during the um, George W. Bush administration that they were going to give to democratic politics, but they weren't going to give on the federal level as much as on the state level, which mm -hmm. is a very strange thing for mega donors to do. Right. And that's a large part why it worked. Um, but there I wrote about some young people, or I consider them young because they're about my age, they're in their mid-30s, but they, um, that's young to me now, yes. but they, um, young to me. <laughs> um, they are, they came up through this system basically mm -hmm. because they were the, they were able to have political jobs, they were able mm -hmm. to be advocates, they were able to start these voting rights organizations because there was the funding, there was the support, there's mm -hmm. a belief in the power of working on the state level. Um, and now they are lawmakers, they're, um, they're just people who are getting things done mm -hmm. and that's an example of like if you support local people and if you put them in positions of power like it just it's recursive the power builds on itself right so it's it, right it's the reverse of what's going on mm -hmm. in missouri so then we get to florida mm -hmm. which i still well 2000 i will never forget florida for mm -hmm. but mm -hmm. um it's Florida still seems, you know, it's it's growing, it's mm -hmm. becoming more diverse, but in my mind, it still seems a complete hot mess. What's going on there? Yes, that is true. Um, in, in many ways, it is a mess. And one of the things that really um, I find very depressing about the situation in Florida is in large part, it is a swing state because there's so many retirees who move there and they're old and they either don't want to pay taxes or they're frankly racist or um, they don't care about climate change because they're going to be dead anyway. Mm. And so that it's really makes me angry that those people are then going to like foreclose on my future or the future of if I had children um, because we're not going to address climate change and all of that because of um, their, their beliefs. Um, many of which I like, you know, are terrible. So Yet all the, these elections seem kind of close, like the governor, so the rate, the president, it's like everything it's is razor tight. Yeah, it's always razor tight. And something, the reason that I chose to write about Florida, um, or one of the lessons that emerged from it, is that um, they, a lot of the problems that are inherent in democratic organizing, um, it, they're exemplified in Florida. For example, the Obama won Florida twice. And why did he win there? Because he created this entire expensive apparatus. But the moment he won, that apparatus was gone. It was disposable. It was not at all like the Colorado political infrastructure, which was there to stay and was based in that place. And so I'm trying to make the point in those chapters um, and to illustrate and describe how what happens when you just invest in a place two months ahead of the election and you expect people to show up to vote when you have not been there to provide them anything right. or to ask for their say. Um, mm. And I think a really important part of the Florida story is that it's the Democratic base lives in Miami and Fort Lauderdale and the southern part of Florida, and there are so many potential Democratic voters there, but the mostly white political establishment has not made inroads with those communities, has not empowered them, has not 
um, put in the time and energy to think like, okay, what do these people need? <laughs> and uh -huh. to notice that they, these different groups who are living there are not a monolith. It's like you can't just have a black or brown candidate and expect that people are going to turn out to vote. So um, I think it's, it's on Democratic strat strategists nationally to focus more on investing in those local efforts mm -hmm. and to really like from the ground up focus on organizing people, being there all year round, talking to people about what's most important to them. Like these things are not rocket scientists. They don't, I'm, your listeners, I'm sure, I know, already believe in them. Right. But they're not things that um, the Democratic establishment there has necessarily, or nationwide, has necessarily um, done. But I love the premise of the book in part because it is the indivisible Westchester philosophy of that you have to build, I refer to it as a wall of resistance against the Trump administration in your own backyard, but basically it's community building, political organizing at the most local level, listening to people as you said, and building those operations from the ground up. Yeah, absolutely, and that is what has been missing, frankly, and that's something that d liberal donors have not prioritized for the past like 30 or 40 years and the right has been so strategic and so good at connecting people on the ground with elite uh, institutions whereas the democratic party generally has not and so many people that i interviewed for the books when we were talking about possibly looking for something hopeful which is like not you know, it's not easy sometimes. Uh, over and over again, people would mention the indivisible groups and oh, say like how successful they've been um, in various parts of the country, like groups like yours really helped with New York State Senate. And like mm -hmm. that is concrete change that, that happens in this, again, as listeners know, in this very laborious way, in this way that is not um, necessarily the most glamorous, mm -hmm. like day, to, day by day, but is like, for better or worse, how things happen. Mm -hmm. It's really important work. So mm -hmm. do you think they're getting that message then? Who the uh, Democratic, the, the Democratic yeah, yeah establishment is it is it is it breaking through? I I don't know. I mean, I don't know. Yeah. is my real answer. Um, I don't know. I think it must. I think it must be. I think that. Um, yeah, I. Th although there, I think the real people to persuade, unfortunately, because of our political system, are like the mega donors, and. I mean, Tom Starr is running for president, so that is not hopeful. Yeah. Um, but so back to the money and politics, back to the money, right? Yeah. yeah. So, but I do think that my hope is that, like, the American people or Democratic volunteers nationwide will not just burn out. Oh, and this is something that I want to say, which again, um, listeners will like already know this, but um, something that's again, people were telling me over and over is. If we're going to invest our time and money, it's better to do it in groups that are there all the time, like mm -hmm. Indivisible, mm -hmm. like various organizing groups around the country, some of whom have paid staff, some of whom don't. That way, those groups are still there rather mm -hmm. than just throwing all of our time and money at some candidate. Yes. Um, and then that candidate's gone. Right. And yeah. that, that was one of the things we that Indivisible organizers quickly learned, those mm -hmm. who hadn't been involved in, with campaigns, is that campaigns would set up and then they would pull up and go and take all of the information and infrastructure um, away with them, which is why um, we are trying to train volunteers to be campaign managers and 
run those local races mm-hmm. and stay and you know build do community building and yeah that's a really important exactly. point exactly like back to the florida example that florida perfectly exemplifies that because again obama won twice but they can't it's been i think 20 plus years since a governor won in florida mm-hmm. and why is that because the governors can't have this pull of these national resources and obama didn't lend them any yeah. right and, and the democratic establishment has not so uh-huh. if you look at states that have swung in national elections they haven't necessarily in local elections for the reason you just described what was the most uh surprising thing that you came across Hmm, that's a really interesting question what was surprising probably a lot (laughs) yeah um i think things were uh this is a cheesy answer maybe but i was surprised um so i went to a lot of hearings which i um I know you've mentioned that you've been to some hearings too in state houses and they are very long and sort of horrible in certain ways because especially if you're like it's a gun bill and you just there are people there who are talking about their dead children who've been shot Mm -hmm. uh so i went to a lot of hearings and i was surprised by how many people have personal courage there are just Mm -hmm. so many people who are willing to do something very difficult and it's not just like, you know, I think we often are expect like there's all this one heroic person or there's, but it's just very routine for people to do things that are very, very difficult. <laughs> and mm-hmm. I think that, I, I mean, that's something also that I feel proud of about the book is that it highlights people who are not famous, who are not um, on CNN every night, just spewing things, but have actually personal experience that's driving them. And um, I'm really surprised by how many of those people there are, you know, it's kind of, it's incredible. It's right. It's in, so the key is to empower those people to keep going. Exactly. And that's what's, it's so important to have a win of some kind mm-hmm. to keep you going. So you don't just become downtrodden and totally depressed and you see the nihilism because it is really hard to hang on to a belief that it, it, anything matters sometimes, but right. that's, it's really important. Again, this is why it's really important to have some kind of incremental win along the way. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So any, yes. Yeah, so any, um, any advice that you would have for activists, uh, um, mm-hmm. in regards to what they should be doing? I mean, outside of the, just, yes, it reinforces, uh, organizing in your own backyard, but find your courage, I guess, maybe. Yeah, find your courage. Um, I think, again, this is going to sound like cheesy or Pollyanna-ish, but, but know that what you're doing actually is the only way that social change has ever happened, mm-hmm. right? Like it's, it, it strikes me over just, I did a lot of re- like research of just reading his histories and et cetera for the book as well. Mm-hmm. And like, why is the anti-abortion movement so successful? Why are the gun rights movement so successful? Yes, it's because they were connected to forms of institutional power, like during the Reagan administration, <laughs> yes. But also because people just would not give up and so i mean i don't think we should be naive like yes this campaign finance system is rigged like yes like yes all of these things are true but i do think especially for people who do have some kind of connection to like privilege in terms of money in some way or you, you know someone who works somewhere like using those kinds of things and keeping at it is really important any any premise that you had going into writing the book that changed once you came out of it um I, um, that's kind of a question that's similar to any surprises, no, yeah, but is any premises different? I am more, or do, did sim- you lock into um, kind of this no, thesis the I more you went into it? Um, no, I'm trying to think of how to phrase this. I am more, 
I am more sympathetic to people who were more quote unquote radical than I was before I I think I saw how thoroughly rotten so much of our political system is in a way that's um, I'm more sympathetic to people with more radical demands than I was when I began. Um, like I, I'm more, I see the corrosive effects mm. of money in politics, mm. and I, I agree with people who have a much more like no tolerance to corporate donations and et cetera. Mm. In a much, I, you know, before I, I, I mean, I don't want to say like I was closer to a moderate because that's not true, but I, I think I, I mean, I, the easiest way to say it is I think I moved left. Mm -hmm. in, in so you kind of. You kind of understood the premise, but you didn't really understand the consequences of what it meant it's until you were on the ground. It's more visceral now, I yeah. think, because you know I've seen the examples. If you hear it framed in a, in a national press, like "oh, this person's a moderate" or whatever, like that sounds fine. It is fine, I, you know, whatever. But then if you're like, okay, this person works for the same lobbying firm as, you know, this person, for example, a former executive director of the Florida Democratic Party. Um, now works for the lobbying firm that represents that used to represent Trump hotels. Represented the government until last week. Represented the government of Turkey, Geo Prisons, which is the major federal contractor that is detaining immigrant families and the children in cages. Oh my gosh! All of that. So when you have when you're you know interviewing that person mm. and being like, oh, this is a quote unquote moderate, and this person is really has made decisions that is align themselves with people who are very nefarious. Um, I just have a much more, um, I see those things more clearly <laughs> now right, because right. I have these, these examples that are much starker in my mind than when before I wrote the book where I would have just heard that person described as a moderate or a centrist or pro-business or whatever and I don't think I would have fully understood what that means. One last question, mm -hmm. are you hopeful about the state of our democracy? Um, so what I've been telling people who ask me that is I learned, I mean, I already knew this, let's be real, but I really learned in the course of reporting this book that I'm a depressive, so you shouldn't listen to me on that. Um, I, yeah, I couldn't do what a lot of the, for example, state lawmakers do, where they're there every day listening to these difficult stories and they have to just sit through. I just couldn't do a lot of the different jobs that people have that I spoke to for the book. Um, even some of the activists, I like can't believe that they'll do it two days in a row. Um, so I don't, I'm not a, I'm not a neutral. So we have to keep going is what you're saying. Indivisible in all these groups. Yes. We can't stop. No, no, you can't stop. Also truly, I mean, I'm not just saying this to butter you all up or something, but really in interviewing people across the country again and again, you were offered as the only hopeful thing on the horizon. So it's a lot of pressure, but um, I trust Not like the stakes are high. <laughs> 2020. Yeah. Thanks, Megan. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you for writing this book, for doing the research, you know, um, for again, reinforcing this very important message that all politics are local and we have to keep organizing and as we say, resisting on the local level. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to Indivisible Westchester, the podcast. Be sure to check us out online at indivisiblewestchester.org, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And also be sure to keep on resisting. <laughs>